In its early days, Star Trek had had a rocky road in comics. This is odd, as you would think a dialogue-heavy, idea-driven, but visually innovative science fiction show like Star Trek would be ripe for conversion to comic strips. But weirdly, writers didn't seem to be able to get a handle on Trek for a good long time. It wasn't for lack of trying. Star Trek debuted in comics form in 1967, just in time for the series' second season to start on NBC television. These comics from Gold Key were incredibly rudimentary and often riddled with mistakes, but nevertheless ran for an impressive 12 years. I still haven't read any. Sorry, but they look appalling. When the show began screening on the BBC in 1969, UK audiences were also being treated to Star Trek comic strips, which appeared in three different magazines, Joe 90, Valiant and TV 21. Oddly, the BBC must have planned to begin screening Star Trek far earlier than they did, as the strip started being serialised in January of 1969, where the show only appeared on the BBC in June of that same year. I don't wonder what readers of the time thought about this. Did they think Star Trek was an original strip? After all, there was no TV show to support it. Again, I've not read any of these. In 1979, with the premiere of Star Trek The Motion Picture, Marvel Comics picked up the license. After the smash success of the Star Wars comics, Marvel seemed to license anything in those days. However, George Lucas's pulpy science fiction lent itself to comics far better than Trek's more thoughtful approach, and I think it was here that I cemented my opinion that Trek works better in novels, where it can be treated as proper science fiction, whereas Wars makes for better comics, being more visually splashy and featuring more action. Marvel's Star Trek was at least moderately faithful to the movie, but they couldn't make reference to or use characters from the TV show due to rights restrictions. However, the creme de la creme of Star Trek comics, as far as I'm concerned, came in 1984, when DC Comics picked up the license. DC's rights covered all the TV shows, the first two films, which was all there was at the time, the 22-episode animated series, and all characters therein, meaning they could do sequels to old TV episodes, bring back characters not seen since the animated show, introduce new characters, and, crucially, they were all set in modern-day, current continuity. See, Paramount and Gene Roddenberry let writers have a much freer hand in the early 1980s, and DC chose to follow Marvel's template for Star Wars, i.e. they set their adventures in between the movies. This made for far more interesting reading. Nowadays, licensed comics set their stories in the same time frame over and over. Star Wars, for example, is stuck in between Star Wars and Empire over at Marvel ad infinitum. IDW seems intent on making more and more stories being set in the original five-year mission. But present-day adventures made the series feel unique and new. After all, we hungered for new stories. Back then, remember, Star Trek was only 79 episodes, 22 cartoons and two movies. And that's what DC gave us. And as far as I'm concerned, at just the right time. See, this all coincided with the BBC beginning a rerun of the entire series once again. And I'd started watching from the beginning. Now, I'd seen Star Trek before this. I used to watch it with my nan. But this was the first time I'd gotten in on the ground floor, as it were. From its inception on the BBC, the show was screened in a seemingly random order, which, let's be honest, doesn't really matter at all back then. 
Sure, I'd occasionally notice that the uniforms looked a bit different, or that Captain Kirk seemed a tad portlier, but overall, Star Trek's continuity was pretty loose to non-existent. However, with this screening, the BBC started with The Man Trap, and went forward from there. Being able to see the show from the start was where I really got hooked and became a fan, rather than being a casual viewer. Now, according to the BBC's Genome Project, which attempts to map every show the BBC have ever screened, this rerun started in June 1984, and DC's Star Trek comic was dated February 1984. Due to the lag in getting US comics to British newsagents, February is when it will have hit newsstands here, rather than November of 1983, which is when it actually came out stateside. Confused? You will be. Now, my memory is that I picked up the comic after enjoying the show for a few weeks. I specifically remember having just seen the episode Charlie X, which aired 3rd of July 1984. But that can't be the case, as the comic would have been up to issue 6 by then. And I do distinctly remember buying issue 1 at the newsagents in Makinson's Arcade, because I remember being attracted to the George Perez cover. So did I buy that before this rerun? After all, I was a Star Trek viewer at that point, so it's possible. But again, my memory is that I bought this book every month, so it's possible my memory is conflating my watching the show and me buying the book as being current events when they can't have been. Memory's a funny thing. Either way, the DC comic was pretty damn good. The first story art brought back core from the TV series episode Errand of Mercy. This was an epic, for the time, four issues long. After that, the comic had some fill-in artists and then told Savick's origin. This used a lot of material Vonda McIntyre put into her novel for the second Trek film, The Wrath of Khan. The first eight issues were all set after Trek 2, but the writers had apparently been given a little foreknowledge on how to link up with the upcoming Star Trek 3, as McCoy starts experiencing weird mental issues around issue 7. After a one-shot adaptation of the third film, the series flipped and started telling stories set after Star Trek 3. If you've seen Star Trek 3, you'll realise why this may have been a problem. But writer Mike Barr didn't look at it that way. To him, it was a creative challenge. He kicked off with a massive eight-part story that brought back the Mirror Universe, a story I've covered on a previous episode of this show. Barr then left with issue 16, and the comic hit a creative slump. DC believed Barr would be back after catching up on his other writing commitments, but sadly, he never returned. This meant there was a lot of people in the centre seat for a few months, something that can kill a comic in its tracks. Thankfully, most of the fill-ins were of high quality. Actor Walter Koenig wrote issue 19, novelist Diane Duane wrote issues 24, 25 and 28, and they are three of the best issues of Trek comics ever published. The first two annuals, covering Kirk's first and final missions of his five-year captaincy, are also in this era, and are still two of my favourite Trek comics ever. Still, this couldn't continue. And with issue 32, the series welcomed prolific comics writer and longtime Trek fan Len Wein as the regular scribe. This meant Wein was in the big chair for the focus of this episode. And I know what you're thinking. And you're right. When are you going to get to the point of this episode? Well, dear listener, we're here now. Issue 33 was a story that celebrated the 20th anniversary of Star Trek. Now, the 20th anniversary was a big deal. Something one would have thought Paramount would have remembered when they came up with the lacklustre 50th anniversary celebrations. Or lack thereof. 
In addition to the release of Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, the original unheard pilot film The Cage was released on video for the first time with an introduction by Gene Roddenberry. The first giant Star Trek novel, Enterprise The First Adventure, written by Vonda McIntyre, was published, and there was a plethora of merchandise and other paraphernalia. DC celebrated with a special double-sized issue with a cover by Jerry Bingham. It featured the TV-era Enterprise and the movie-era Excelsior, which in the comics continuity was Kirk's new command. The main image is the crew as we remember them on television, whilst the background images are Kirk and Spock in the movie era. At least I assume that's the intent. Kirk and Spock don't look that different in either incarnation. Also, the cover features Kirk, Spock, Uhura and a guy in a blue shirt, who I assume is meant to be Dr. McCoy. But he looks nothing like DeForest Kelly, and he's far more buff than McCoy ever appeared. Odd. Vicious Circle was written by Len Wein with art by Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. The Enterprise is attempting to return to her own time after finding itself trapped in the late 1960s. However, the crew of the USS Enterprise and the command of Captain James T. Kirk have overshot their own time by about 20 years, and the distress signal is picked up by the USS Excelsior, now under the command of Admiral James T. Kirk. Admiral. Admiral Kirk invites Captain Kirk over to the Excelsior to try and figure out why the Elder crew remembers them returning to their own time without incident, when that clearly wasn't the case. The appearance of the Enterprise and the subsequent meeting of the two crews has caused a chronal warp, which is causing severe disruption to the timeline. If the situation isn't resolved, the universe may shake itself apart. Spock and Savick must work together to solve the situation, but a repeat slingshot around the sun won't cut it. The coronal disturbances are making calculations too unpredictable. A solution presents itself when the USS Surak, now under the command of Captain Spock, arrives, and he suggests a trip to the Guardian of Forever. Once there, the Enterprise must speed towards the planet, whereby the coronal energy field that surrounds the planet will theoretically act as the Stone Guardian did and return the Enterprise to her correct time. If not, the Enterprise will crash into the planet and be destroyed. Captain Spark returns to the Guardian to establish the exact point of departure for the Enterprise and transmits the coordinates to Commander Spock. Then, the Surak and the Excelsior move out of orbit as the Enterprise makes its desperate gamble. Despite the hazards, the Enterprise makes it back to its own time. Time has resumed its shape. All is as it was before. Many such trips are possible, but they aren't recommended. This 20th anniversary celebration, which actually says celebrating 20 years of voyages on the cover, is a delightful and entertaining story by Len Wein. Its reliance on time travel technobabble isn't offensive, and in fact prefigures its overuse in The Next Generation and Voyager, but at least here it's handled in small doses and never overpowers the story. Yes, said story is just an excuse to have the casts meet their younger selves, and therefore have a number of nice little in-gags and jokes, but we never forgets to drop in some drama. Whilst Admiral Kirk's visit to the Enterprise is all too brief, there's a lovely moment where he looks around at what he's lost. Thankfully, Dr McCoy is there to keep him from wallowing in self-pity. The art, though, is variable. 
Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran deserve all the credit in the world for sticking on the series for as long as they did, a far longer and more consistent run than you'd see nowadays. However, there are a lot of glurring errors that spoil some of the story's enjoyment. The Enterprise looks great in the opening of the story, and really good on the splash page, but by the end, when it's navigating the coronal disturbances, the ship starts to look like it's made out of rubber. Both the Excelsior and the Enterprise bridges are inconsistent and far too cluttered, and there are far too many errors regarding which version of the characters are speaking at any one time. For example, there are two Kirks at the bottom of page 21, but they are both wearing movie-era uniforms. Young and old McCoy switch places at the bottom of page 22, made even more confusing by the colourist trying to fix the error, resulting in the TV series Dr McCoy wearing a blue movie-era costume. Villagran, by this point in the series, can nail movie-era Shatner quite well, but classic series Shatner is a tad bland, weirdly looking like Christopher Pine more than he looks like William Shatner. Movie-era Spock and TV-era Spock also have very little to differentiate their faces, which is a shame, as Nemo became a lot craggier as he aged, meaning there was more character to his face to draw. As I've mentioned, the comic book set its stories in between the films, and so as not to repeat themselves, they gave Kirk command of the Excelsior and Spock command of the Surak. This was pretty neat for the comic, as it gave them a chance to tell different kinds of stories with two different crews, something they probably couldn't have afforded to do on a television budget, but then whenever they brought them together, there was normally a good story reason to do it, such as in this issue. Savak is also present and correct, and serving on the Excelsior, although still being drawn to resemble Kirsty Alley rather than Robin Curtis, who replaced Alley in Star Trek III. The addition of Savick and the other comics-only characters were a lovely touch and gave the proceedings a feeling that there was a real crew on the ship that grew and developed. This was all thrown out with the photon torpedoes when Gene's assistant, Richard Arnold, started throwing his weight around, telling DC what stories they could and couldn't tell. He also nixed any characters that weren't part of the core crew under the pretense that Gene didn't want them, when in fact there was no evidence Gene really cared what the comics did. The temporal paradoxes are well handled. McCoy wonders why they don't remember this encounter, whilst Admiral Kirk ponders what will happen to him and his crew if Captain Kirk were to die. These issues were explored magnificently in the little-seen and criminally underrated science fiction gem, Continuum. Available on Netflix. Go and watch it. This issue, um, Len Wein takes his cues from the episode Tomorrow is Yesterday, and in many ways this story is a direct sequel to that. Tomorrow is Yesterday was a first-season episode that heard 19th in the original run. In Star Trek 2, Khan knows Chekhov, despite Khan also appearing in a first season episode, Space Seed, which heard as episode 22. Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov, did not appear at all in season 1, yet Khan knew him, but here, Kirk does not. Hmm. I'm sure a Trek fan of long standing like we knew that, so this was a deliberate choice that he made, and it would be interesting to, to know why he made that choice, given that. Wrath of Khan establishes that Chekhov must have been on the ship earlier than we saw him. There are problems with the story, only little niggly nitpick things, but, you know, that's the whole point of doing a show like this, isn't it? The story does need jeopardy, I get that, but I didn't really understand how having Kirk and crew overshoot by a mere 20 years would cause the entire universe to rupture. As usual with most Trek, this assumes that there are not alternative timelines other than the Mirror Universe, and that the timeline is sacred and must be restored at all costs. Well, apart from Gillian Taylor, who skips 300 years with seemingly no universe-altering effect, but to Ween's credit, Star Trek IV hasn't happened yet, so he doesn't know about that. 
It would have been interesting in the adaptation to Star Trek IV if they'd made a one-line reference to this adventure. And Spock actually say, well, one person won't really make a difference. But essentially, we were a crew of people and we've had quite an important effect on, on the unfolding of the galaxy. So, but Gillian Taylor, obviously not that important. Sorry, Jill. Oh, and let's not forget the J.J. Abrams movies, where we don't give a shit about fixing the timeline at all, because we're far too lazy to be bothering with that. Uh, I do think that the universe is capable of handling the misallocation of a mere 450 people. Besides, if this followed the strict adherence to the one timeline thing, then the older crew should have winked out of existence the minute the younger crew arrived. Ween hand waves this by saying that one person jumping across time would be okay, which ties into what I was just saying about Star Trek 4, but 450 is far too much for the universe to handle. Personally, I think the universe is capable of handling the misallocation of a mere 450 people, but, you know, as I said, the Enterprise crew have had a major impact on the universe as it unfolds, so maybe that's what the coronal disturbances things were all about besides if this followed the strict adherence to the one timeline thing then the older crew should have winked out of existence the minute the younger crew arrived but you know ween hand waves this quite admirably it has to be said the only real issue i have with the story is i kind of wish it had been a novel or a two-parter even at 40 pages there are moments that feel a little rushed and the character moments could have been allowed a bit more space i would have loved more scenes with young spock and savik especially as it's quite clear that young spock knows savik more with older Kirk and Janice Rand could have been interesting, especially given how Janice was shuffled off the show pretty early on into its run, before tomorrow is yesterday, I think. Although, you know, if Chekhov wasn't on board in season one, then maybe Janice Rand was there longer. Who can say? Trek continuity is enough to make your head burn. More with older Kirk and Janice Rand would have been interesting, especially seen as Rand seems to be still on the ship here, whereas in the show, she'd already left. Kind of like, maybe Chekhov replaced Janice Rand. Hmm... I think we could have got a lot of humour out of Chekhov being uh, Captain Kirk's yeoman. That would have been quite funny. Certainly somebody that he wouldn't have flirted with anyway. Along those lines, more of the cast meeting themselves would have also been neat. There's a moment with Uhura that's nice, although it's a little bit weird by today's standards. Apparently young Uhura's a bit upset she's not left Starfleet to marry and have kids by elder Uhura's age. I don't know that that'd fly today. Even though, you know, it's perfectly acceptable. If somebody wants to pack work in for a short time, go and look after the children. That's great. Sadly, though, Sulu, Scotty and Chekhov don't really get any moments to shine other than the latter's meeting with Captain Kirk. The resolution to the plot, however, is actually really good. Older Spock knowing a way out simply because younger Spock hasn't been to the Guardian of Forever yet is a really good way of demonstrating that knowledge and learning never stops. And it's a way out without making younger Spock be dumb. Tying the time distortions from the beginning of The City on the Edge of Forever is a clever use of continuity. And repeating the last page of the last issue, but leading into a different cliffhanger merely by changing the lettering, as well as repeating the beginning of this issue, is a really clever touch to show the timelines have gone back to normal. Or it was then. Reusing or photostatting the art on multiple pages is now really overused and borderline offensive when you're paying so much money for this drivel. All told, this is a great anniversary story. More interested in character than plot, but it has spectacle aplenty. Like I said, it does feel rushed in places, and a longer story or a novel would have helped with that. But for a double-sized celebration of the series' 20th anniversary, this is an underappreciated gem. It also shows something that only the comics could do. Even now, 
special effects technology probably couldn't afford to do this story unless they did it as animated and even if they did that sadly leonard nimoy deforest kelly and jimmy doohan are no longer around to provide the voices i can see how the art may put some people off but whilst it has its problems it's not dreadful and the likenesses are all pretty good in places as such, this is an excellent Star Trek comic. If you've never seen it or never read it, it's well worth picking up. I believe it's not expensive. It's one of those issues that can be easily found uh, in the cheapy bins, especially as I don't believe DC's comic series has ever been reprinted in its entirety. So this would be the only place that you'd be able to track this down is to actually pick up the issue itself unless it is in a trade paperback somewhere and anyone wants to point out to me where that is and i will pass it on to any listener that is interested okay listen to this and then we'll we'll talk emails i'm thomas dj top professional i'm scott mcgregor talented amateur and we'd like to invite you to join us for our journey through every adventure of the avengers no not that avengers you won't find any tights magic hammers or fancy shields here We'll find some supervillains and some hot women in tight leather, so there is that. And champagne. Oh, yeah, lots of champagne. With Umbrella, Charm, and Bowler, that other Avengers podcast, covering the seminal spy series that lasted from 1961 to 1969 on an episode-by-episode basis. Join us as we explore the television series that helped shape pop culture and made an icon out of Diana Rigg, Honor Blackman, and Patrick Dean. With Umbrella, Charm, and Bowler. That other Avengers podcast coming straight towards you every month only on the two true freaks podcast network okay continuing the star trek vein voyage into going boldly by nathaniel wayne hey there andy hey nathaniel still doing catch-up one of the nice things about that is i've got to binge through your voyager viewing all in one go which was quite enjoyable voyager is the track i've probably seen the third most of after the next generation and original ahead of ds9 enterprise and discovery which in reality means i've seen maybe three episodes start to finish and a bunch of tiny snippets of others one of them was actually one you mentioned death wish which i remember largely liking but then he's cute and he's always fun it's kind of a shame that it sounds like things could have been notably improved with a few key casting shake-ups. It's funny sometimes what shows are or aren't willing to change or get rid of. I always tend to imagine that those behind-the-scenes things at play, be it at a production level or at the studio level, because often narrative rationale alone would make those easy calls. Ah, well... Speaking of behind the scenes, I ended up looking a bit into Garrett Wang, based solely upon your note of his quote about Rick Berman, who is someone who can definitely be fairly criticised. Hearing how undiplomatic the quote was, I was curious to see what I could find about that would have caused it. What I came up with didn't paint a very pleasant picture of Wang. If I'm being honest, I didn't find much in depth, but I did find numerous quotes from Wang complaining about his time on the show. And taken collectively, the guy just came across as a bit of a prick. He came in as a massive fan of original Trek, and the quotes from him bring to mind the entitlement that's behind so much nastiness we've seen in geek circles lately. The one that sealed the deal for me as feeling safe in my assessment that this guy's at least a bigger part of whatever the problem was, was a quote where he complained about never getting to direct an episode. It's his claim that he's the only cast member who wished to direct but was denied the opportunity. I can't verify that, because I'm lazy, but even if it's true, he then goes on to assert that every cast member who ever directed an episode didn't care about Trek, and only did it to get the DGA, Directors Guild of America, credentials, and that if he'd have been allowed, he'd have made the best episode ever for a first-time actor-turned-director. 
Even if his frustration is justified, the arrogance of that and the casual crapping on other people's work pretty much sealed the deal with my now rather dim view of the man. I accept that there are two sides to every story, but these are in his own words rather than somebody's second-hand account, and he just sounds like a spoiled, pompous douche canoe. Um, I didn't delve too much into Garrett Wang's problems. Obviously, I've seen a couple of his quotes about Rick Berman, and I used them in that show when I was uh, when I was talking about Wang. I, I am aware of his complaints that he didn't get to direct, which seems to be the main beef that he has with Rick Berman, that he didn't get to direct. But I think to say that Jonathan Frakes doesn't care about Star Trek and only went into directing to get his DGA credentials is, as you say, yeah, that's crapping on somebody else's work given that Frakes has essentially turned his career into that of a director rather than an actor. Now, by Frakes' own admission, not always by choice. He found acting gigs harder to come by after Star Trek than directing gigs. But if you actually look at the directing choices that that Frakes has made it's always genre stuff that he's interested in um you know he's directed a lot of science fiction a lot of Dean Devlin stuff like Leverage and um The Librarians a lot of that stuff Jonathan Frakes has directed he'd also done Burn Notice and Castle and he's gone back to do Star Trek Discovery so I think to say that Jonathan Frakes isn't interested in Star Trek is um is spinning it out a bit and Leonard Nimoy Although I do think in Leonard Nimoy's case it was to further his directing career. I don't think there's any doubt of that. None of the others have returned to direct Discovery. Although LeVar Burton has a number of episodes of Star Trek under his belt. Not just Next Generation. So he paid his dues. And maybe there was a feeling from Rick Berman that, that Garrett Wang hadn't put the, the time in. I mean, Jonathan Frakes has talked extensively that prior to his first directorial gig, he went... And approach Berman about directing an episode in the second season. And apparently Berman was, look, I'm not just going to give you a directing gig. You have to prove to me you can do it. You know, Star Trek's a very intense show. Takes a lot of time, a lot of prep. You need to show you can do it. And for the first half of the third season, before Frakes directed his episode, which was midway through the third season, he spent every moment that he wasn't acting with the directors shadowing the directors, watching what they're doing, watching music spotting sessions, watching editing sessions. He has said that for the first half of that year, he barely went home and had any sleep because he was just, when he, like I say, when he's not working, he was working. And he so maybe Garrett Wang wasn't just willing to put the work in. Obviously, we don't know Rick Berman's side of it. Berman tends to play this close, very close to the chest. He lets people complain about them without ever really complaining himself. Presumably having created, what was it, co-created three different Star Trek shows and worked on all of them from the next generation onwards up to Discovery. He just sits back and counts the zeros in his bank balance and isn't really too concerned about what people say about him. But, you know, like you said, we, we probably won't know both sides of the story until Rip Berman does say. But maybe Wang, yeah, just didn't want to put the work in. Nathaniel continues, I'm actually kind of puzzled by your annoyance and assistance, insistence, sorry, of Robert Picardo's doctor being used to explore the character of mental health traits. I have a hard time reading your androids are okay holograms aren't as kind of oddly pedantic and nitpicky. I mean, to compare to Data, it's not his physical body that makes him able to develop his humanity, it's his programming. Yes, there's a positronic brain as the hardware, but how is that fundamentally different from the doctor's brain running through the ship's hardware? We live in an age of learning algorithms, one that can learn quickly and can 
can only have that be halted by being forcibly shut down. Think the language learning chatbot that was set loose on Twitter and became racist in less than a day. A program like the EMH would have to be a learning program. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to do anything that the original programmers didn't specifically think of. He'd just crash in the face of a new problem not covered in his memory. And once you set up a program to learn, there's only so much you can do to curtail that. I could have merely swallowed your issue at the time of erring, but knowing that we know now about advances in artificial learning with programs that need not be housed in one specific piece of hardware, I don't know, I feel like you might be just a bit biased against AI citizens who didn't have the privilege of being born instead of procedurally generated. I'm being a bit cheeky there, but I think you get my point. I think my issue with that is something that they brought up very, very well in Battlestar Galactica. And they talked about it a lot in Galactica. At what point do these robots, toasters, they uh, referred to them in Galactica, possibly racist, I don't know, toasters, at what point are they sentient? And they did an entire episode that was really good, that was essentially a Guantanamo Bay riff, where Colonel Ty was all about torture him. Torture him as much as you want, get what you need out of him. He's a fracking machine. And Captain Apollo was arguing that, well, no, he's, he's actually responding to stimuli and he's learning. And, you know, if we start torturing these things, we're no better than they are. I think my problem across the board is I do tend to have, maybe it is oddly pedantic and nitpicky, but I do tend to have a problem with stories whereby anthropomorphic tendencies are applied to machines. It's like I talk to my phone all the time. I ask Siri questions all the time. But I don't think of Siri as a person. You know, I'll discard my phone and upgrade it as and when I want to. I don't feel like I'm getting rid of a friend. And it's, it's, it, is, it is an oddly strange thing because I have no problem accepting that Michael Knight has this relationship with Kit. But Kit's a car. And yet the most affecting episode of Knight Rider was the one where he got burnt down in sewage. Ugh. Yeah, there's an interesting dichotomy there, isn't there? I personally, do you know what I think it is? I think it was telling to me that one of Voyager's most interesting characters, the character that grew and changed the most over the course of that show, was a hologram. And I think some of that was down to the writers not willing to take any risks with the human characters, and some of it down to the fact that Robert Picardo is a brilliant actor. Uh, but I still, at the end of the day, I still think if you can turn something off, is it is it human? I don't know. But obviously these are all issues that we're going to be wrestling with in the future. Or maybe not, because we don't seem to be let old grievances go long enough to start arguing about new stuff, do we? You know, we've not really progressed that much. So I don't know. I, don't, I think I'd have to be confronted with it in some way. It's like in the Spider-Man 2099 comics where he has Lyra, the holographic thingy, and she clearly has feelings for Miguel O'Hara. And when I was reading that, I was like, but she's a hologram. She can't have feelings. I don't, it's a weird, it is a strange one. And it's one I would have to devote a little bit more thought to than just addressing it off the cuff, as it were, in an email. But I get what you're saying. It's just, you know, but I, I don't, I don't tend to think of Robert Picardo's doctor as being anything more than this laptop I'm recording this podcast on. Maybe that's a failing on me. Obviously, maybe that's something I would have to look at in myself in a situation like that, especially if he confronted me with them. Um, so you don't think I'm a person, do you not? And I would have to answer, no, I don't. So, hmm. Food for thought, which is what Star Trek does best. So I thank you for that. 
Uh, back to Nathaniel's email. Seven of nine was an interesting idea and I think reasonably well executed. I do agree that the Borg Queen was never needed in the first place. It was a movie conceit so there could be a clear central villain, which from a visual storing aspect I kind of get. But it removes a big part of the uniqueness of the threat. A true collective with no central governing entity is just weirder, more alien and therefore scurrier. Once it becomes, oh, they follow her, it's way less interesting. I didn't mind it for first contact, but I really wish the show hadn't run with it. I'd have preferred something like a quick exchange that established that the Borg once experimented with the Queen, but found it unnecessary. Also, I have a hard time of thinking about Seven of Nine without my brain jumping to a burlesque number done by a friend of mine, Alexa Luther, the kryptonite to clothing. <laughs> that is a great name. <laughs> oh, I do love me some nerdalesque. That, that is very amusing. <laughs> Alexa Luther, the kryptonite to clothing. <laughs> oh, you've tickled me, Nathaniel. Uh, Chakotay really left any impression, continues Nathaniel. And, um, and truth be told, if it wasn't for the stuff on his face, I probably wouldn't have remembered it at all. Guess that held all the way through. Interestingly, with Chakotay, going back to what you mentioned about Garrett Wang as well, apparently Rick Berman was asked to get rid of Scott Bakula on Enterprise, either after season two or season three. I heard this discussed on a podcast recently where they felt that he wasn't quite up to the level of captaincy of, of Kirk and Cisco and Janeway and they wanted to get rid of him and Rick Berman stood by his leading man and said, no, I'm not firing Scott Bakula. Ultimately, that bit Berman in the ass later on. But um, maybe that shows that Rick Berman was actually quite loyal to his cast, which again goes against what Garrett Wang is talking about. So, you know, people are confusing and complicated, aren't they? We all are, in many ways. I'm not the same man I was yesterday, and I'm not the man today that I will be tomorrow. Whatever, whoever said that quote. It's very profound. Don't know who said it. If I was smart, I'd look it up, but I can't be asked. It's kind of funny, continues Nathaniel, how sometimes revisits or deeper dives into things don't change your opinions as much as solidify why you've had them in the first place. I found that happening semi-regularly in my ongoing rewatch of modern era Doctor Who for the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. Thought I'd forgot to shove in a plug now, didn't you? Who were misses? Still, it's sometimes nice just to be able to back up your assessments with more than just this is how I feel. Terrific work, as always, geekly yours, Nathaniel Wayne. P.S. I can't hear the name Neelix without immediately thinking about the Mad Magazine parody. I was a subscriber in the mid-90s where he was called Kleenex. Yeah, it's a cheap joke, but Mad Magazine was nothing if not the masters of the cheap joke. Yeah, it's a cheap gag, mate, but it's a funny one. <laughs> oh, thank you, Nathaniel, for another thought-provoking email. I didn't think that it would be thought-provoking to the length that it is, but maybe I will have to give some some thought to my um, my prejudice uh, and bigotry towards AI life forms. Yeah, seriously, I, I will actually think about that. Because that's the kind of person I am. Anyway, believe it or not, it's just Liz Ann is my next email. Hey, Andy. Hello, Liz Ann. Uh, I, too, liked The Greatest American Hero. It was a fun show, and it was cool seeing these things work together. Connie in her second superhero thing. I think she was in the Red Brown Captain America film as well. I think you are correct about that. I think she was. Anyway, this was fun, and the new gal could have worked. The arm wrestling bit made it work better for me, since she wasn't super goody-goody. I do wonder if Cat was gone because he was working with his mom on Perry Mason. I think it was more a case of they wanted to bring the show back, but they didn't want to bring it back as it was. Um, and like you say, 
William Cat was busy on Perry Mason, Connie Selica was busy on Hotel, so they wouldn't have been available anyway to do a weekly series. So I think that played into it as well. So I think you're absolutely correct with the, the torch passing thing that you, you say a little bit further on. Whilst watching the show and getting her into the arm wrestling match, which I liked, I was a little bit, oh, gee, Miss Dudley Do-Right. But with her bar, and I'm sure she'd have shown more growth as time went on, just had a slight edge to her. Like with Spider-Man selling his photos to J. Jonah Jameson. He's aware he's doing good, but also making a book. But yeah, your Shazam movie comparison was appropriate. Although I can't see her doing the lightning from the hands thing. I did like the Shazam movie. And now I want to see Kevin Smith as Uncle Dudley and Jason Mewes as Tawny. Back to the greatest American hero. With a cast that worked and a fun concept, I do wonder why they only got an instruction book. Why not a VHS with a player and make an institutional video like people have to sit through when getting a new job? <laughs> that would be probably what they'd do in the new one. It'd be a YouTube link now, wouldn't it? <laughs> and then YouTube would take it down for copyright infringement so he couldn't actually watch it, whoever the new candidate for the suit was, he, she, whatever. Um, and that that's why they don't have the instruction manual. That That's actually a really good idea. That would be amusing. Can't wait to hear the next podcast, Lizanne. Well, thank you very much. That's a good idea, that, that the new the new instruction manual would be... Well, not a VHS, you'd be a YouTube link now. That'd be great. <laughs> anyway, last one for tonight before I uh, bugger off and do other things because we're, we're approaching the 45-minute mark and I normally keep these things at an hour or so. Uh, Palace, greatest American heroine. Our email is from John and or Maggie Schaefer-Hames. I believe this is from John Schaefer-Hames, who hosts uh, the podcast with his wife, Maggie. So you should go and check that out. Married with Comics. Go and have a listen to that, because I don't think that John does his internal plugging as well as Nathaniel does. Maybe I should reword that sentence. Hi, Andy. Wanted to compliment you on this Palace episode. I had no idea that this spin-off attempt existed until you covered it. Or if I did, I'd completely forgotten. Which is strange, because as for a seven-year-old me was concerned, there were two TV shows. The Dukes of Hazard and The Greatest American Hero. This was before I turned eight and Knight Rider debuted, and I forgot about both of them. I've now seen the spin-off pilot and agree with pretty much all of your points about it. Bill Maxwell does come across as much more mean-spirited in this one, and I think a lot of that had to do with the different way that the left and the right were being depicted, at least on American TV. In the late 70s, early 80s, you could still show political disagreements of being differing opinions about ideas, rather than showing us a conversation where we learn who is right and who is a terrible person for not knowing they're wrong. Even Archie Bunker, a character who held literally every racist, sexist and offensive belief ever, was also shown as being a decent human being at his core. By the time of the Regan-Thatcher era, this was in full swing. Media went through an eerily familiar phase of not knowing what to make of the changed politics of the age, which led to an attempt to cater to all sides at once by playing to both sides. So rather than continue that same adversarial level of banter with the new duo, they instead had to make Bill completely sexist and Holly a granola-eating whale saver. And don't forget, folks, these things are equally mockable here in the 80s. Anyway, that was a weird tangent for the topic at hand. It's too bad that the show didn't get a complete chance to work out the kinks, and doubly sad that the planned reboot seems to be dead as well. Ah, well, we'll always have the theme song. John Schaefer Hames. That, yeah, that's that's a notable point, because Bill was every bit as sexist in the original show as he was in Greatest American Heroine. But in Greatest American Hero, you had Ralph I rolling at him, and you had Pam smacking him back down into his place, which was always amusing. Because, as you say, at his heart, Bill was a decent character and a lovable character. And you often got the feeling that he was like J. Jonah Jameson. There was bluster there. But they, they obviously they did an episode of The Greatest American Hero where 
they have to target a far-right group who are... Oh, God, I can't even remember what the plot is. They're planning to kill some religious ideology figure for some reason, and Billy's quite happy to take those people down. So there was a there was an interesting... They portrayed the political landscape of the greatest American era with far more nuance than you could argue they would do nowadays, which for a show made in 1982 is quite impressive. But yeah, um, it did feel like Bill was more sexist in that particular show than he had been in the original, especially seen as he'd worked with Pam a lot. Um, not spam a lot, which is a completely different thing. Anyway, thank you guys for the emails. Much appreciated. I have more emails. I'm in the position of having loads of emails at the minute, which is never a bad position to be in. So thank you very much. Continue to drop messages my way. Uh, obviously, I will get through them as we go along because I do like to give you your time in the sun. If you've took the time to email, I will take the time to read them. Just don't make them too long. That's all. Okie dokie. Thank you very much. As ever... Policy Glitting Direct is a two true freaks presentation. And if you want to email me, it's heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. And a new email has just arrived as I'm sitting here from Jason Trenner. Hi, Jason. So it'll be a couple of weeks before we get to that one because I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven or eight in front of you. That's really good because I hate never having any email. Anyway, uh, yeah. Take it's comments at virginmedia.com. If you want to join these guys in emailing the show, let me know if there's anything you may want to see. Like, um, Shag Matthews did, which resulted in the Galactica comic book episode. Uh, I'll be going now because I've got stuff to do, but thank you very much for joining and listening to this inane drivel for the past hour or so, and indeed supporting the show wherever you may find it. That's great. Uh, remember, everything is going to be okay. I actually do firmly believe that everything's going to be fine. All right, see you all again. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>